Thanks for being here to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Um, I want to uh, introduce, I guess, myself and our speakers uh, by way of first saying that uh, none of us are experts on Mary Shelley or Frankenstein or anything like that. We're not literary uh, professors or anything like that, but uh, we are amateur aficionados of the novel. Uh, the, the novel has played a role in our lives in one way or another, which will be discussed during uh, the discussion portion. Um, I'm also, as you've seen, we're, we're recording this, uh, the audio. We're going to try to do a little experiment, kind of like Frankenstein himself, uh, to turn this into a podcast. And if it works out nicely, I might do more podcasts from library events. Um, so I'm Alex. I'm the adult services librarian. I plan stuff like this. Um, and uh, I love horror books, and I love suspense books, and I love science fiction books, all of which Frankenstein falls into. So when I found out that, that it was uh, the 200th anniversary, I thought, well, we can't let this opportunity go by. we got to do something special. Um, and our two panelists are, let's start with you. I'm getting an introduction. i got to introduce myself. you got to introduce yourself. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm uh, Andy Roback. I'm a chemistry professor at Cuca College um, and an enthusiast. And uh, yeah, so I've got a bit to say. Frankenstein was a chemist to some degree, so and so am I. Should be an interesting point of view. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm Bethany Snyder. I am a writer. Um, I dabble in horror a little bit. And I actually worked for a publishing company that condensed and adapted classic literature for children. And two of the books I personally adapted were Dracula and Frankenstein. So I'm here to talk a little bit about what that was like and my experience with the book. And then also as a horror writer myself. Wonderful. Thanks for being here. Um, and we're going to start just really quick, a little five-minute video that uh, for any of us who did not have a chance to reread the novel in the past month or so, um, it offers a little bit of the background of the book, uh, the uh, circumstances under which it was written, the plot, and some of the themes. So I will do that now. <clears throat> Stay tuned. And flees, 
but time and space aren't enough to banish the abandoned monster, and the plot turns on a chilling chase between the two. Shelley subtitled her fireside ghost story, The Modern Prometheus. That's in reference to the Greek myth of the Titan Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity. This gave humanity knowledge and power, but for tampering with the status quo, Prometheus was chained to a rock and eaten by vultures for eternity. Prometheus enjoyed a resurgence in the literature of the Romantic period during the 18th century. Mary was a prominent romantic and shared the movement's appreciation for nature, emotion, and the purity of art. Two years after Mary released Frankenstein, Percy reimagined the plight of Prometheus in his lyrical drama Prometheus Unbound. The romantics used these mythical references to signal the purity of the ancient world in contrast to modernity. They typically regarded science with suspicion, and Frankenstein is one of the first cautionary tales about artificial intelligence. For Shelley, the terror was not supernatural, but born in a lab. In addition, Gothic devices infused the text. The Gothic genre is characterized by unease, eerie settings, the grotesque, and the fear of oblivion. All elements that can be seen in Frankenstein. But this horror had roots in personal trauma as well. The text is filled with references to Shelley's own circumstances. Born in 1797, Mary was the child of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Both were radical intellectual figures, and her mother's book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, is a key feminist text. Tragically, she died as a result of complications from Mary's birth. Mary was haunted by her mother's death, and later experienced her own problems with childbirth. She became pregnant following her elopement with Percy at 16, but the baby died shortly after birth. Out of four more pregnancies, only one of their children survived. Some critics have linked this tragedy to the themes explored in Frankenstein. Shelley depicts birth as both creative and destructive, and the monster becomes a disfigured mirror of the natural cycle of life. The monster, therefore, embodies Dr. Frankenstein's corruption of nature in the quest of glory. This constitutes his fatal flaw, or hematia. His god complex is most clear in the line, In life and death appear to me ideal bounds, which I should first break through and pour a current of light onto our dark world. Although he accomplishes something awe-inspiring, he has played with fire at his own ethical expense. And that decision echoes throughout the novel, which is full of references to fire and imagery that contrasts light and dark. These moments suggest not only the spark of Prometheus's fire, but the power of radical ideas to expose darker areas of life. So that was an interesting recap of the origins and the themes of Frankenstein, and I'm sure we'll touch on a few of them as we uh, as we go through this. But I'm very interested to start uh, with um, your personal connections to the book, and so uh, I'd like to ask Bethany first to talk about this um, adaptation you edited and created. What was the process like? So when I was growing up, I don't know if you remember, there were these great illustrated classics that were around. And we had all of them at my house, little tiny paperback versions. And I read all, I read Moby Dick when I was little because it was in this little condensed version. 
And so the company that I was working for was interested in doing that, but doing it right. Because actually, if you go back and read those great illustrated classics, they played with the plot however they wanted. I can't remember Frankenstein exactly, but I did Dracula as well. And they completely just did whatever they wanted with the plot of Dracula to make it less scary, I guess. I don't know. I remember they messed with some of the characters in the in the plot and everything. So our task for this series was to be very, very faithful to the source material. So what we did was sentence by sentence condense and adapt it for a third grade audience. So I read every sentence very, very, very carefully <laughs> and tried to be very faithful to as much as I could her language because it's, there's a lot of complex sentences and paragraphs that a third grader is not going to be able to understand. Um, but we stayed very true to everything, including the framework where we start with the story of the captain and then we move into the story of Frankenstein and finally to the creature and then back out again. The great illustrated classics version does not do that. It just starts telling the story. So you've already lost the kind of framework framework and then story within a story that I think makes part of what makes Frankenstein really unique. Were you able to capture any of those romantic illusions that Shelley was so steeped in or were you able to translate them somehow for an audience that doesn't have that background in you know, Greek myth and, and all those kinds of things? That, I think, does get a little bit lost when you translate down to a third grade reading level. We really tried to stay true to the dialogue, which is difficult because they speak in these like big, elaborate paragraphs, like these soliloquies that go on and on. Um, so I don't think that part quite made it through, but we really just tried to stay very, very close to the plot and to how it unfolds and the deeper meaning, I think. This will be a nice introduction when you're young, or if you want to read it now, it took me like an hour to read it today. And it's got really big text um, and pictures. And then you can dive into the actual text and remember what that's like. And I think that's important because, you know, as lovely as those romantic illusions are and all that kind of flowery language and stuff, it's telling an important story that I think a lot of the adaptations that we have down through the years kind of lose um, a little bit of, of that important flavor. So I think capturing the essence of the themes and the plot is probably the, that was probably the right way to go. Yeah, awesome. it's a good start for people, I think. Absolutely. Uh, how about you, Professor Roback? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so, so I read this book first in high school. Uh, I had a choice as to what type of like junior year English courses I was able to do, and I picked the horror section because I thought it would be most interesting. Uh, so it was the same year I took chemistry for the first time and read Frankenstein. And honestly, it's, it's one of the few things I even remember reading in high school because uh, it, was, it was pretty influential. So you know, when I think back on it, uh, this and maybe one other story are, are the kind of books that remember I remember really just helping me get into science, really. I always have to say that as sort of a caveat now. It's like, I was inspired to be a scientist by the book Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, but I, but in, in you know, having read it a few times now and, and reread it again uh, coming uh, to this, then I, I still kind of stand by it. Uh, the story in the beginning, uh, sort of his tale uh, of his early life and being inspired, you know, it, it in itself is kind of inspiring. It, it happens to mirror you know, kind of what it looked like to become a scientist at the time. So you had to be sort of rich and your family had to be able to send you off to college to go and learn and things. And a lot of the early scientists 
uh, you know, sort of took that route. I mean, he had to be born wealthy most of the time. Um, but, but there's some really neat lines in there. Uh, if you forgive me for jumping onto one. Um, uh, so this great line to Beth Science, it says, uh, chemistry is that branch of natural philosophy in which the greatest improvements have been and may be made. It is on that account that I have made it my, my peculiar study, but at the same time I have not neglected the other branches of science. A man would make a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If your wish is to become really a man of science and not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply every branch of natural philosophy, including including mathematics. And so I read that in high school, and I kind of think back to what I do now, and you know, my education, what I've always tried to do as a professor in school, is to try and go broad, you know, like biology and chemistry, interested in space, literature, all that stuff. Um, so it, it seems like I really well and truly was sort of inspired by the, by the story. Awesome. And it, no shame in, in a, a piece of fiction kind of inspiring an investigation of the real world because fiction reflects and sometimes enhances the real world in some ways. So I think that's really cool that that uh, led you down the path and now you're a professor of chemistry at a liberal arts school. That's awesome. Right? I think it's really cool that that inspired you to be a scientist because I think reading this book is one of the things that made me want to write even more, to continue fiction and to explore the kind of darker side. I took a class in college. You had to sign up and just cross your fingers that you'd get it because it was so popular. It was called Blood, Guts, and Ghouls. And it was all about gothic horror. And it was, and we read Frankenstein and Dracula and um, Jekyll and Hyde and just a host of other things. And I just remember thinking, yeah, this is my jam. This is it. This is what I want to do. And the fact that Mary Shelley was so young when she wrote it, which I think we can have a discussion about that Absolutely. too, because there's so many questions about did she write it. Um, but seeing her a young, a young woman, a woman, and writing horror, that was really intriguing for me as a young woman who wanted to write horror. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and even in the sciences back then, if there were women doing work, and, and a lot of, we sort of uncover these things more now, but a lot of the famous scientists had wives who were essentially like lab assistants, uh, who very well might have made a lot of these sort of famous discoveries, but then were never able to get any credit for it. Uh, so that, you know, it's, it's nice that relatively upfront, you know, she was uh, credited for writing it and not hasn't didn't have to go under a man's name right. or yeah. have her husband say he wrote it or those kind of things. Yep. Yeah, she uh, the fact that she was in circles with you know Percy Shelley and, and Lord Byron, uh, it was a fortunate confluence of events uh, that allowed her to sort of stand on her own. Um, rather than being, you know, I can imagine a few other writers of that era who would have said, oh, yes, let me just <laughs> grab that manuscript and slap my name on it. We'll talk a little more about that, I think. Yeah. Um, when I was looking into this uh, subject a little bit more, and I, so I feel less prepared to discuss the scientific elements because I'm more on Bethany's wavelength with writing and creativity and stuff, um, which is why I'm also I'm super fascinated that Andy has the perspective that he has. So I was looking a little bit more deeply into the science of the uh, of the century they were living in and all this stuff. So it's interesting to look at the um, the actual scientific discoveries that were happening at the time of the writing of Frankenstein that Mary Shelley seemed to be aware of because she certainly included signs of them in the book, 
Um, you know, it's easy to think like, oh, well, somebody's just writing a horror novels or just making something up completely. Like, who would ever think that a, a human body could be brought up to life by electricity? That's so dumb. But that's what science was investigating at the time. And as far as the scientists and people reading about science at the time were concerned, it made total sense that this thing called galvanism could right. have uh, had an impact on, on the human body. And, and for that matter, the human body itself was being, uh, discoveries were being made about it at a rapid pace. So um, I think it's easy to dismiss uh, the science in these early science fiction and horror books as somewhat schlocky, but, you know, she wasn't just making things up whole cloth. She was drawing on uh, authentic uh, theories, I would say. Is that accurate from Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, so... They talk about galvanism, and that was sort of a like a hopped up theory of electricity because you know it was right around that time when some of the early chemists had sort of discovered you know the ability to make a battery, right? So that was pretty much cutting edge. You know, they had this giant thing in a wooden trough, but you could you could create electricity from chemistry, which imagined to be the first to do that. That's impressive. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, that's probably why it holds up so well today too, is, you know, so they, most, or a lot of science fiction, you take a topic, um, extrapolate it to the extreme somewhere we can't go yet, and then, you know, tell an interesting story about it. And so, you know, life, uh, and electricity, you know, we've caught up with electricity and galvanism doesn't make much sense now. Um, which is funny is in the beginning, it, it talks about, um, you know, Frankenstein studied uh, outdated scientists in the in the very uh, intro, and some of his professors gave him a hard time for that. You know, you really need to be studying this guy who is now an outdated scientist from our perspective. <laughs> yeah. But they were real people that they mentioned. Um, but a lot of early science fiction would deal with the moon. You know, what happens when the first person goes there? What kind of weird civilization are you going to find? Right, we've already been there. It's not. There's nothing there. So those old uh, films or books seem kind of hokey to imagine these strange Martians and moon men and such. Um, but, you know, what Frankenstein did in the story, you know, we can't do yet. You know, no one can create life or reanimate a person. You know, it still holds up, you know, to imagine that the, some guy made this leap and now he has to deal with the consequences. So it makes it good science fiction still, I think. You know, 200 years later, and yeah, so that's exactly. what's really impressive about it. <laughs> yeah, how much other science fiction is going to hold up for 200 years? So yeah. Probably not a ton. So one thing I thought was really fun when I was kind of researching this today to refresh my memory was that I think of Frankenstein as a horror book. But it's not. It's actually science fiction because there's nothing supernatural about it. I mean, yes, he reanimated a body, but it's science fiction. It's not supernatural, which is really neat. And, you know, you're talking about like she uses, you know, she mentions things like galvanism and these scientists. But what I admire about her as a writer is how she teased us with little bits of information about that. But then specifically had Frankenstein tell the captain, but I can't tell you how I did it because that would be terrible if you knew. And if you listen to my story, you'll find out why. So there she, therefore she doesn't have to give us any details about how she actually would reanimate a corpse because it would be terrible if we knew. So that sleight of hand as a writer, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Right. Awesome. And they don't even go into much detail really about what he looks like as yep. well. There's some, but then you, you get to fill in the blanks yourself. Yeah. Whatever you think is most gruesome. Mm. There it is. <laughs> and it's not a seven foot tall green guy in my head. <laughs> With bolts cool. in his neck. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that kind of brings us into discussing uh, the 
literary and cultural legacy of the novel and this sort of story that uh, has taken on a life of its own. You know, Mary Shelley put together the parts and it has shambled into our hearts ever since. Um, <laughs> is that your own original line? Shambles, yes, I love that. <laughs> Anything shambolic is in my heart. But uh, um, the literary impact is, you know, we've already kind of discussed that it's hard to put Frankenstein in a box because it definitely has elements of science fiction, probably most of anything. Um, just by sort of popular decision, we've put it in the horror category because it does deal with, um, you know, people getting murdered horribly and chased across the whole planet by a, a terrifying force. And there are fantasy elements, and I think in those reading between the lines where Shelley doesn't explain all the science, you can almost extrapolate this phantasmagorical element to it. So some people read it as a, as in a fantasy kind of way. Um, and then obviously it has inspired so much in the way of, um, you know, just additional literature down to the years. So many writers have been inspired by, by the plot and the themes of um, Frankenstein, including uh, yourself, Bethany. I don't know if either you want to say a little bit about about that. <laughs> why do you why do you write frightening things perhaps? I, I think that the darker side of human nature or the supernatural is way more interesting than like romance or a happy story. Um, so that's what I'm compelled to write about. And I'm starting to gravitate more and more towards supernatural and horror and stuff like that. Although even my straight fiction tends to be dark and depressing. Sorry about that. But I find it more interesting. Um, one thing that I discovered today when I was doing a little research on Mary Shelley was that she was one of the few women writing at that time who was actually a mother. Um, the Austens and Emily Dickinson, they were all spinsters and virgins. And Mary Shelley was a mom, and as the, you saw in the video, she lost four of her five children. And I think that really, really informed her writing, but look at how she gave it to the world. She didn't write a story about a mother who loses four of her children terribly. You know, she it's sort of this idea of gestating a monster, and you don't know what's going to come out when it's born. And I think that the way she took that and turned it into this tale... From a writer's perspective, I love the way she worked through what was really going on in her life and created this creature that has just stayed with us all this time. That's fascinating to think about. I never really thought of her status as a mother as being informative of her work, but that is so interesting to put it in that perspective. Uh, Frankenstein was the baby she, she gave to all of us. Yeah, and still absolutely. Still shambling around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's so many adaptations of Frankenstein. Do you have a favorite, Andy? Um, I forget the director, but probably the '90s film. Oh. It was that was just titled Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I think mm -hmm. to separate it out from the 1931 film, which is probably the most popular one, with the you know the Frankenstein and the lab coat and all the cool electrical gadgets and things like that. Uh, and the Boris Karlov Frankenstein, the, the stiff, goofy guy. Um, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein movie, I think, you know, tried to be more literal, you know, with the, the whole characterization. And that was a favorite. I haven't seen it in a while. Does anybody know that? Is it with Robert De Niro as the yes. monster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Well, how fascinating. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that's interesting, too, because a lot of the adaptations of it, especially on film and in the theater, which was really what took it from... Like she wrote the first version in like 
1918, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, this is a very literate monster. Like he's very articulate. He says yeah. a lot, and he has a big right. vocabulary. And in this, on stage, he became this shambling, mm-hmm. mute creature, and that kind of informed a lot of the film. But Robert De Niro is more true to the yeah this this version of the monster, which is right. which is what she wanted. So I think that's interesting. I remember that liking that film a lot. This is clearly my favorite adaptation. Of course, <laughs> it's got my name in it. <laughs> you, have a, you have a stack of them to uh, sell. I, you, the highest bid gets those. <laughs> <laughs> is that your actual answer? Is that what your favorite? I haven't even really. I mean, I haven't. Some of them I haven't seen in oh, so sure, long. Yeah. My parents and I were talking before I came here today, and my dad was quoting Young Frankenstein. So that that's clearly his favorite. I was talking to someone earlier today, and they cited that as their. <laughs> As their favorite, which is yeah, which is awesome. Well, oh wait, I do have an answer. Yeah. I'm sorry. So a couple of years ago, the National Theater in London produced oh, yes. a stage version of Frankenstein, and they filmed it, and you can see it in the theater. I think tonight and next oh, Tuesday okay. or Monday, there's two actors, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, and they swapped every other night. One of them played oh, the creature, hmm. and the other hmm. one played the monster. And so, like tonight, I think you could see the one where Benedict Cumberbatch played the monster next week, Johnny Lee Miller. And I did see the one where Johnny Lee Miller played the monster, and it was fantastic. Danny Boyle directed it, and it was just really amazing. But I've always wanted to see the flip, yeah. because every night they just swap. And I thought, that's interesting, because Frankenstein and the creature are really two halves of mm-hmm. the whole, and they're the two actors played both sides, so that was pretty cool. That's amazing. And this is being aired somewhere? In theaters right now. Oh, wow. They do it every every year, usually in October. You can go up to like Rochester, like the Regal up in Henrietta will play. Mm-hmm. Both versions on two different nights, and you can go. Gosh, I wish we'd known about that. We could have all just gone to that. <laughs> you can, we can go next week and see okay, cool. see the, the other one. Awesome. But it's if you get a chance to catch it, I highly recommend. I mean, those two actors are both phenomenal, and they had very different, from what I've read, very different takes on their physical embodiment of the creature, and and the doctor as well. Cool. Yeah, well, something to look for. Any favorites from the audience? Favorite adaptations? Morris Carl. Yeah. It's classic. Yeah. <laughs> it's classic. We just rewatched it back to back with Bride of Frankenstein last week. And I don't know if anybody's watched them side by side like that, but Bride of Frankenstein really pales in comparison to the, the masterpiece that is. Uh, and yeah, see, he isn't like the, the book monster at all, but he does, Boris Karloff certainly does his own thing with it. And it's. Uh, the Bride one was hokey. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't expecting that. So it was an odd contrast. But uh, I've been watching lately uh, Penny Dreadful, which kind of combines a bunch of different Victorian figures. And the the little Frankensteinian aspect is uh, gruesome, but also uh, I think gets to the heart of the the conflict between Dr. Frankenstein and the monster, um, but also the pathos of the monster, which is always a really important element. Any other favorites? We've heard Young Frankenstein, the 1931 Frankenstein, uh, Danny Boyle's Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> I just like the book. <laughs> Any adaptations? Tend they're to making a, That's true. They're in the process of making a new version of The Bride of Frankenstein, oh, okay. but a serious one. Like it's okay. Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz are going to star mm-hmm. in it, I guess. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Did I hear somebody with a one back there? No? And <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I want to say that for the podcast. She said Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It's a little of the humorous taste. <laughs> Twists it just enough for uh, <laughs> some... some, uh, some I'd like to know what, what possessed the, the publishing company to put this in a version for, did you say third graders? Yes. Interesting. What, what's the... Uh, well, I'll tell you, I think that the people that ran the company I worked for were interested in making everything that the great illustrated classics had made. And there's like 36 of those. And this is one of them. So we made this. And I mean, their intention is to get kids interested now so that later they'll read the real books. Um, so like I said, I adapted four books for this company. This was one. And Dracula was also another one that I did. <laughs> Did Dracula maintain, not to get off the subject of Frankenstein, but, you know, Dracula has a lot of uh, sexual undertones. We definitely downplayed that. It's all replaced with high-fiving. There you go. Fist <laughs> box. <laughs> Strange knuckle mark on it. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> the folks at home listening that all the ships at sea aren't going to know about this part, but I have posted around the room four images, and when we're done, you'll feel free to wander around and take a look at them there, uh, from something called the Franken Cities Project, and this is just another instance of a trend that I saw when uh, researching this topic of how Frankenstein as a concept still kind of lives and breathes today. Um, and so this was a uh, like an architectural and urban planning school in Zurich or something like that, that uh, took as a project to imagine cities of the future. Um, I think it, they sort of took inspiration from the idea of, of, of sticking things together the way the Frankenstein's monster was created from a hodgepodge of dead bodies. These are created from a hodgepodge of like the terrible things in the news today. So like you have a, a, over here there's a city in uh, I think the Congo that you know it makes use of what's going on in Africa today to to postulate how that city might end up a couple hundred years mm. from now. And so you've got a few, they weren't all like terrible, so it wasn't like a scary project ex explicitly, the way you might think of a Franken Cities project. Um, like Frank and Geneva, well, and that one's scary too. It's, a, it's dried up with the glaciers, so that's not a good one either. But they weren't all necessarily scary, they were just sort of like imagined futures, kind of in the same vein of Mary Shelley, imagining the direction science could take. So that was very interesting. Uh, just as an example of how the concept of Frankenstein lives on in our culture um, and the way that, you know, it's given so much to our lexicon. Mm -hmm. You know, we when, when you know, we get our car started after it died in the winter, we shout, it's alive, which I don't believe is <laughs> ever said in, in the book. book. It's only in <laughs> various um, so you, We call things, oh, it's a Frankenstein's monster, or it's a Frankenstein. We're talking about things that are kind of hodgepodges put together. Frankenfoods. Yeah. Frankenfoods, yeah. Um, so the, uh, the, the themes of the book have really ingrained themselves in our culture. I think that's why these things are all, you know, we don't just, it's not just a movie that we see once and kind of forget about. It has a greater power over us. And I think the power is because of its themes. And just a few of the themes that kind of jump out at us are things like technological hubris, that connection between Frankenstein and Prometheus, dealing in matters that man should not. 
um, alienation, um, the, the creator and the monster separating from one another and having an antagonistic relationship. Um, monstrosity, obviously, you know, we don't always create things that are beautiful. Um, sometimes they are unwieldy and inartistic, and that's just the way the world works sometimes. And abandonment, um, which the whole move, the whole book is the story of, of a parent who flees their child at the first possible opportunity and the child following after. Um, so I, I think that it's these themes that keep Frankenstein such a part of our, uh, our culture. I don't know if you guys have anything, you know, if you have thoughts about that. Definitely. <laughs> Expound. <laughs> I, I, I tend to take issue with the first one. Okay. You know, so the technological hubris, or the mention in the video of sort of the god complex. You know, like he's he was punished because he he tread where no man was supposed to, or you know he pushed his science too far as far as that went. Um, you know, but you know, I, I read it, I reread it. You know, I just don't really think it's about that. I, I think that's sort of a mischaracterization of the of the guy of Frankenstein and, and what he's gone through. Um, because I think it's more about, you know, him really making... The, the real mistake was abandoning the monster, right? So, you know, almost everything that happened poorly to him afterwards is because he abandoned the monster, and even when it tried to reach out to him, you know, he's like aghast and trying to kill it, and, you know, and eventually, you know, that culminated in, uh, you know, it killing his wife on the wedding day and his friend and destroying his family and all those things, basically because he rejected it, you know, not necessarily because he created it. Yeah. Uh, if he had been able to look past its appearance, uh, obviously it was super intelligent, was able to learn, you know, it could have been, you know, an actual sort of success story. So I, I think, you know, it's, it, to me, it's not about punishment for playing God. You know, the modern Prometheus was the early title, but it doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, that exact sort of literal idea. Um, but yeah, I think it's about that rejection. And, uh, you know, the, especially in the beginning of the book, a lot of the parts that were sort of inspiring to me talked about science, but, you know, they made a really concerted, concerted effort to talk about his parents. So Frankenstein says, and his, his, talking about his parents, he says, they seem to draw inexhaustible stores of affection from a very mine of love to bestow them upon me. And so he's talking about, you know, just how much his parents loved him, which clearly the monster never gets. Um, you know, it, it's the exact opposite of what he ended up giving the monster as far as that goes. Yeah, that's interesting. It ends up being, you know... We read it as this cautionary tale about, you know, don't go too far, but so what you're saying is that's not the problem. It's take responsibility for what you accomplish when you go that far. Right. I think that's a very wise reading. And the scientist to me is like, well, okay, it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. Saying, yeah, so what if you were able to take someone who had just passed away and then recover them back to life? And just because he had done such a mismanaged, such a bad job, of managing his creation and being aghast by it, you know, he he does not tell anyone the science. He's aghast by it, you know. But you know, he was successful. Yeah, right. I, can't, I can't remember where I saw some little jokey sketch about Frankenstein. That what if he was doing it in like a modern university? And so there's like the plan of study and like the the review board. Right. <laughs> so the monster would have turned out way differently. Maybe not necessarily better, but there would have been some. Uh, <laughs> Something going on to back him up there. I probably would not have passed it, the review board. <laughs> yeah. There's such an interesting through line about beauty 
right? Mm-hmm. It's really about he's ugly. He doesn't. He's grotesque to look at. And then there's the we correlate that to you have <clears throat> your bad nature. You're you're morally flawed, but he wasn't by nature. He was innocent and he was ugly. But then we, the flip side of that is beauty is goodness, it is intelligence, it is kindness, and all these things. We still have that today, right? Someone's gorgeous, and we put them on a pedestal, whether they're repugnant on the inside or not. Whereas someone can be super ugly, <laughs> and we're like, oh, we don't want to look at you. I don't care how great you are, how smart you are. So that's an interesting plot to me. I think when I was young, I thought Frankenstein was the don't mess with what you know you can't create life that's not for man to do but i totally agree it's not about that it's about the abandonment i mean the monster is to me the most sympathetic character in the book mm-hmm. which i don't i think when you're young you don't how could that be possible he's right. this lumbering menace and he's gonna kill everybody i don't i feel way sorry for him than i did for frankenstein even when like his brother and his wife and everyone and his best friend were getting killed i was like yeah. well <laughs> you were a really bad dad. <laughs> right. It's certainly a story that merits revisiting at different stages of your life because it is very easy to see the monster as the bad guy when we have that black and white vision of the world when we're very young. Um, but hopefully by, by reading your book, they're inspired to then pick it up again in high school and then again when they're in their 30s or 40s and so on and watch the movies in between and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you were not you were shaking your head when I was talking about beauty. Were you disagreeing with what I was saying? No. Okay, good. Because I, I was like, oh, let me know more. <laughs> um, thinking about how, at the same time this book was written, Byron's physician John Polidori created the popular image of the vampire, which is an exact mirror image of Frankenstein. Yeah. It was based on Lord Byron supposedly who was physically attractive, but unfortunately did not have the ability to find worth in other human beings. Right. Mm. And Polidori did feel quite inferior to him. Byron looked down on him, and he was well aware of this. And even today, we have this persistent image of the vampire as someone attractive but evil. Yeah. And fascinating that those two stories emerged simultaneously in the same castle. (laughs) It's crazy the the way literature works. I'm so happy to be a librarian. That's why when we do our we do our PY Writes Haunted Inkwell oh, yes. writing prompt nights for Halloween, That's maybe right. the next That's, great right. horror icon will come out of that. Very true. Good plug, by the way. Thanks. Just Saturday, <laughs> if you want to write uh, some Halloween prompts, come back here. We'll be here at 1 o'clock. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Um, we touched upon this earlier, but I definitely want to delve back into it a little bit. Um, the kind of general topic of feminism as it relates to the book and its creation. I don't know, you read into a little bit of this, uh, Bethany, and uh, could you share with us what you were thinking? Yeah, you know what I Googled today was, did Mary Shelley really write Frankenstein? Because a lot of people don't think that she did. They don't think that a 19-year-old girl was capable of writing something like this and that Percy had to be the one who wrote it. And it's true that there was three versions, and he did, He was involved with one of them. He added like 5,000 words to the story. But the original story was 70,000-some words. So, um, And then there was a final version that they kind of both worked on at the end. But um, a couple years ago, this gay rights activist named John Lawrence wrote a book 
about how there was absolutely no way Mary Shelley wrote this. Hmm. And his whole point was that she wasn't smart enough, she wasn't educated enough, when in fact she was very educated. You saw her parents were, and her boyfriends and husbands and whoever else she was hanging out with were all very literate and educated. Um, but his whole take is that it's actually written by Percy Shelley, and it's about his love of men. And his relationships with mm-hmm. men, which I thought, well, that's a different take. <laughs> and this guy, this John Lordson, I had never heard of him before, but apparently he has very controversial opinions about a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and they've all fizzled out except this one. People have really kind of glommed onto this, and people have, I found so many think pieces mm-hmm. about his take on Did Mary Shelley Write Frankenstein? Interesting. And as a young woman, I'm not young, 19, but I'm like, screw you. Yes, she wrote this yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how how society is willing to keep debating that. No matter, I don't, I haven't read his book. I don't know what his sources or what you know where he got his ideas from. But uh, I think the preponderance of evidence and agreement from scholars is that Mary Shelley certainly was uh, the author of this book. So. But society's willing to debate it they for are. some reason. Yeah. I don't his, know what that could be about. His <laughs> main evidence is people have said that she wrote it because it's written in her handwriting, because uh-huh. the, obviously the manuscript was handwritten. But she also took she took dictation from Percy all the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of his work is in her handwriting too. So they say his this guy's like, well, that doesn't mean it was her words just because it's in her handwriting. I went down the rabbit hole with it, and <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> I am confident in in saying that Mary Shelley is a, not only is she the, the writer of Frankenstein, she is one of the great unsung literary geniuses of the 19th century. So mm-hmm. that yeah. guy can just shove his ideas. <laughs> the, the, yeah, you can, you, can get, you can dig yourself in deep and like make connections where they don't exist. You know, And when you tend to do that, it tends to be people ignoring sort of the big picture mm-hmm. things or the more obvious things. You know? So you can draw all these elaborate connections yeah. You know, like, you know, people who are into numerology, if you look at the number four, it shows up in a lot of strange places, and then you can start to think that the number four is suspicious. Yeah. But, you know, that's disregarding the bigger picture, right? She's attributed in the time, you know. Yeah. The the most logical, simplest answer is that she wrote it and probably collaborated a little bit. I think one of the interesting things from a writing perspective is you think about the themes that you just read out loud to us, and even the one that I read today about the idea that she was a mother, and maybe this had something to do with the way she was processing all of her miscarriages and stillbirths that she experienced, is that we don't really know what her intention was when she wrote it. Did she just want to tell a scary story? I've written stuff where people go, oh my God, the theme of that was, and I go, what? What theme? It was just a story about an amusement park. And you have to wonder how much I think of the first version the the first version of the book which you can see online had less of the thematic the pointed thematic stuff you know was it really just I want to tell a scary story and this is my scary story and then the thematic stuff gets added either by her or by us in the way we interpret it and like clearly this John guy interpreted it very differently than I did but when I read about the idea of her putting her her experience as a mother, applying that to Frankenstein, the character, and the book, I think is super interesting take on it. Right. And she might not have even been thinking that directly, Absolutely. but it can still come out. Yep, right, exactly. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we have time to watch the uh, early 20th century silent film 
But uh, do you guys have any final points you wanted to make? Any final observations about the book or its legacy or its themes? Or young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely have a, a, a one-line closer. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> right, so, so a lot of this stuff, you know, the talk about science and the, his being happy for being well-read and, you know, there's all sorts of things. Uh, but here were books and here were men who penetrated deeper and know more. It's kind of inspired me. But it was, I'm rereading it again. And he's in sort of university, learning from, he gets attached to a mentor in chemistry, he's telling him all these things to do, and then eventually he turns to studying death and dead bodies, and so in my head I'm like, Frankenstein's real biggest mistake was he switched to biology. <laughs> right? That's where it all went. He stuck to chemistry. None of this life and death. Would have been all right. <laughs> Would have been a very different book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts, Bethany? No, I, I just think I was, it was fun to talk about it, and it's fun to see how, I mean, I think we all interpret it differently. Filmmakers have, and Thomas Edison did, and mm -hmm. yeah, we'll we all have our second. version of what makes somebody monstrous. <laughs> yeah, so. cool. Well, thank you both so much for uh, for speaking to us and using your uh, your experiences to inform the discussion. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs>